Even if the overall abortion rate is the same between those two sets of countries, the abortion rate per unintended pregnancy is actually much, much higher in pro-choice countries and much, much lower in pro-life countries. is Caring for Both, a curbside consult series by the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists, where medical professionals answer your questions about what it means to provide evidence-based, life-affirming health care to both pregnant women and their preborn children. We know that every day in your practice and on your rotations, you face clinical situations that are challenging. We've all called a curbside consult when we need a quick second opinion on the best course of action for a patient. This podcast series is meant to serve as a curbside consult for you as you face ethically challenging patient care scenarios. Hear from experts on how they approach these situations and tips for how to think through them. We upload new episodes every Thursday. I'm your host for today, Miriam Diallo. Today's topic will be focused on public policy. Advocates on both sides of the abortion issue have brought questions and arguments about the various policies that they feel may reduce the rates of induced abortions in their communities. Many have proposed that those who wish to see abortion rates drop should promote welfare, sex education, access to contraception, and more in addition to or even instead of seeking to pass legal regulations on induced abortion directly. Here to assess these arguments is Dr. Callum Miller. Dr. Miller currently works as a medical doctor in the UK. He also teaches philosophy at the University of Oxford, where his research focuses on abortion policy in practice. Dr. Miller has given over 40 academic presentations internationally and taken part in multiple debates against the CEO of the UK's largest private abortion provider, BPAS. He has published in top academic venues on a variety of topics, including maternal mortality in the developing world, the ethics of voting on abortion, Animal and Fetal Pain, Abortion and Mental Health, and Telemedicine Abortion. He has received prizes from the University of Oxford and the Royal College of Psychiatrists for his work on bioethics. This is going to be the first of a two-part conversation, the second half of which we will upload next week. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Before we dive into the policy questions, I'd love to first ask if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. You seem to have devoted much of your career to life issues, taking a multidisciplinary approach from medicine to bioethics, and today we're talking about public policy. So I'm wondering what motivates your interest in this work? Yeah, well, so I became pro-life at medical school, so I never really expected to be doing this kind of research or this kind of work. Um, in England, it's not really a topic that comes up very often because the huge majority of people, well over 90%, are pro-choice. And so it's sort of a settled debate in that sense. And so I never expected to be involved in this. Um, but then I really just found as I was in medical school, I, I firstly became pro-life. And then I realized if the pro-life perspective is correct, then it kind of changes everything because it's you know a huge issue. One in four pregnancies ends in abortion, which means that one in four humans has their life ended by abortion. So it's really you know, a, a huge topic that I felt I had to discuss and, and research, but also it was one that I found immensely fascinating. I think there's so much in terms of abortion 
you know, there are so many issues that it relates to. It relates to, you know, the most basic thing about humans, which is the fact that we reproduce and have families. And sometimes we choose not to do that. Um, it relates to questions about public policy. It relates to questions about law, questions about personal identity, about medicine, about psychiatry. Um, there's really just so much of academic interest in this debate that it was actually um my academic area before I really started talking about it in any other context. I just was a researcher in this, in this field. Um, I did decide after a while to shift from the ethics towards, I guess, policy questions. And part of the reason for that is the ethics of abortion has been debated for, you know, many, many years, and there's been a huge amount written on it. And in my mind, the ethical arguments are pretty decisive in favor of the pro-life view. But what I found is that when it comes to the debates you often hear in the media and in politics, it's actually much more about questions to do with the empirical data, questions about how abortion affects women, how it affects the child in particular concrete ways, like whether the child feels pain, even, you know, questions about economics and abortion or maternal mortality and abortion. Um, And there was so little research on this, particularly from a pro-life perspective, that I felt if we're going to actually make a case for life in the public policy arena and in the public arena, we have to know not only the basic ethics of the question, but also engage with some of these empirical questions. And so that's what I've tried to do over the last few years. That's quite a journey, and it, it seems it certainly gives you a, a unique perspective on on such a multifaceted issue, including the narrative that we're trying to examine today. And and that narrative is the idea that you know pro life advocates are so focused on banning abortion, but abortion bans won't end the practice uh, because women will just find ways to circumvent the law. People who promote this narrative often say that if we really wanted to end abortion, we would focus on addressing the reasons why women find themselves considering it in the first place. So through promoting welfare, sex education, access to contraceptives, etc. So let's explore that narrative and let's start with that first claim that abortion bans don't stop induced abortions from happening. What's your assessment of that? Yeah, well, I, (laughs) I hate to sound... I guess, arrogant at the start, but this is really the easiest question to answer of, of all the questions we'll talk about today. Um, because we know basically with certainty that restrictions on abortion do prevent abortions. Now, they don't stop all abortions, but they do stop quite a lot of abortions. And of course, if you're pro-life, even just saving one life matters. And so even if they just stopped one abortion, that's a reason to do it. Um, because you've given the entire world, you've given an entire life to to a human being. And not many people can say that about any human being. Um, So I think it's it's a little bit, I guess, ambiguous when people make this claim. They're either saying abortion bans don't stop all abortions, which of course is true, but it's completely irrelevant because no one is claiming they stop all abortions. We're just claiming it saves many lives. Or they're saying that abortion bans don't stop any abortions. You have exactly the same number of abortions, whether abortion is legal or not. And if this is what they mean, then it's just very clearly and demonstrably false. Um, but I can, you know, I can offer a couple of bits of evidence for the idea that pro-life laws work. The best evidence, or the most direct evidence, is studies which which look at women who went to get an abortion and they were denied an abortion 
And then the study follows them up and says, what happened? Did you have the baby or not? So the most famous example in the US is the Turnaway study, which has been very publicized the last few years in America. It's a study where there was really, you know, it took place in the last 10 years and it studied women who went to get an abortion. They were beyond the gestation limit for the faculty or the facility or the clinic. And so they were turned away and it followed these women up and it found that about three quarters of those women ended up having the baby. So some of them had a natural miscarriage. Some of them went to another state or another facility, but the large, large majority had the baby. Um, this is interesting, partly because it shows that, you know, the, the regulations do work, that if women can't get an abortion, many, many of them, in fact, the large majority in this case, end up keeping the baby. Um, but it's also interesting because it shows how those women coped afterwards. So they fo followed the woman up after five years and they said, do you wish that you could still have had an abortion or are you glad that you had the baby? And at five years, for the women who kept the baby and raised the baby, 98% said that they were glad they had it. So it was an overwhelming majority were glad, um, which really shows that what a woman fundamentally needs in this sort of situation is not an abortion, but is the time, support, um, and compassion and care that helps her to look after her baby. Um, one of the most interesting things about this study was that even just a week after being denied an abortion, when you would expect that the woman would still be in huge distress. She would be seeking an abortion wherever else she could. Even just a week after the abortion, about a third of the women no longer wished they could have an abortion. So even just a short time after abortion denial, a third of those women actually came to terms with the pregnancy and didn't even want an abortion anymore. So there are many, many other studies like this. If you read the Turnaway study, they say this is the first of its kind. Um, it's not really true. There's actually tons of studies <laughs> which basically all show the same thing, that if a woman cannot get an abortion, the chances are that she will keep the baby. Now, this was such compelling evidence that the author of the Turnaway study, Diana Green Foster, actually wrote an article for Rewire News Magazine. And the title was, Stop Saying That Making Abortion Illegal Won't Stop People From Having Them. Um, and she basically points out that there's a ton of empirical evidence that restricting access to abortion does actually prevent abortions. She says there's no magic rule that women will always get an abortion regardless of the law, regardless of any access, regardless of anything. It's simply not true. And she's saying that to her fellow sort of abortion advocates who, who make this claim that it doesn't work. Um, you know, there are many other ways that you can tell that these laws work. You can look at the birth rates. And we know that in many cases, the birth rate changes when abortion is banned or uh, legalized. And of course, if the birth rate changes, it's not just a transition of legal abortions to illegal abortions or vice versa. What you're actually seeing is that babies that would have been aborted were in fact born. And we've even seen that in Texas since, uh, since Dobbs v. Jackson. You can look at countries, you know, um, cross-country comparisons. So you can look at countries that are states even that are very similar in culture, um, in most other things, except they have different abortion laws. So, for example, the United Kingdom had a very different abortion law from Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland for about 50 years. And what they found was that even when you take into account illegal abortions, even when you take into account Irish women traveling to get abortions, 
we actually had decent data on those. And what it found is that the abortion rate in Ireland was way, way lower than it was in, in Great Britain, where abortion was legal. Um, there are many other other studies along similar lines and, and yeah, many studies that confirm this. I want to just highlight one particular study or sort of argument that the other side will make to, to kind of authenticate this claim that abortion bans don't work, though. So... What they will normally say is, this is pretty much the only argument you ever hear for this claim. They say that when you look at countries around the world, the abortion rate is the same in countries that ban abortion as in countries that allow abortion legally. So they'll say that, you know, the abortion rate in European countries where abortion is allowed is the same as in Africa where abortions are mostly not allowed. Now, there's a couple of problems with this claim. Um, the first is that even when you assume those statistics are correct and you just assume that this is a good argument, what the statistics that they cite show is that the abortion rate per, unin- per unintended pregnancy is actually very different. So even if the overall abortion rate is the same between those two sets of countries, the abortion rate per unintended pregnancy is actually much, much higher in pro-choice countries and much, much lower in pro-life countries. So, you know, it's something like 10, 15, 20% in African countries where abortion is banned. And it's something more like 40, 50%, sometimes even higher in European countries. So if you allow for the fact that they have massively different unintended pregnancy rates, it actually becomes clear that the risk of abortion given an unintended pregnancy is actually much, much lower in pro-life countries. There's other, even probably even more significant problems with this claim. These statistics are probably not accurate in the first place. Um, We know that the main methodology, I won't go into detail, but the main way they estimate abortions in pro-life countries is by looking at complications of abortion where they get complications of miscarriages and complications of illegal abortions. They lump them together because they usually can't distinguish them. And then they sort of uh, come up with, basically, they guess, you know, how many abortions were there per complication. They think how many miscarriages were there likely to be at a sort of natural rate. And from that, they come up with this estimate of the total number of illegal abortions. Um, now, what has been shown a number of times pretty clearly and decisively is that these statistics are massively wrong, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Um, they hugely overestimate the number of illegal abortions. So, you know, when you, what they basically do is they take a whole load of miscarriage complications and they attribute them to illegal abortion. And therefore, that massively inflates the abortion rate. And so when you actually work out a much more realistic set of numbers for these, the illegal abortion estimates fall by a huge, huge proportion. So the the estimates that they come up with are not credible at all. They're massively overestimated. And the reason for that is so that they can make this argument that abortion bans don't work. <laughs> um so it's a circular argument to, to, in, to that extent. So for all of those reasons, it's a really bad argument. It shouldn't even be in academic journals. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit of a farce. But of course, it's a, politi- a politically convenient argument. And therefore, I think that's the main reason that we still see it in some of these journals. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And it's it's fairly intuitive that if you make something illegal, you know, less of that thing will happen. And, and it seems like the, the research bears that out in the case of abortion. Yeah, let's let's dive into the, the next question of welfare. Uh, one idea that people on both sides of the abortion issue put forth is that expanding government aid for low-income folks will reduce the financial burden of an unplanned pregnancy uh, and thus reduce the pressure for women to terminate that pregnancy. So the, the first question I have here is, how much of a role does financial pressure play in women's decisions to obtain abortions? Yeah, I think it's a it's an instinctive thought because financial reasons are a significant chunk of women's reasons for having abortions. And this is true in many different countries. It's true in the US, it's true in uh, Ghana, it's true in the UK, it's true pretty much all over the world that a significant chunk of abortions will take place for financial reasons. Um, and therefore, you you might very instinctively think, well, if we just solved those financial reasons, you know, the woman would not feel like she has to have an abortion. And therefore, the, the key solution to abortion is just to give better financial support. Now, again, this is it's a little bit misleading. We'll come to that in a moment. Um, but just to give you some statistics on sort of the financial question, um, it's a significant reason for abortion, but actually it's rarely the main reason. And it's actually a, a relatively small proportion of abortions that take place for financial reasons. So just as an example, there was a study from the Guttmacher Institute, I think about 30 years ago now, um, but on certain questions, the Guttmacher Institute actually has quite good data. Not always, but sometimes. And what they've done in this paper is they've selected a whole load of different countries. Um, and these are mostly from the 1980s and 90s, where almost every country was significantly poorer still. Um, and what they found was that actually, in most countries, people didn't really cite financial reasons for abortion, except in a minority of cases. So in the US, it was about 21% of abortions were because the woman um, couldn't afford a baby. In Czech Republic, it was 13%. In Mexico, it was 16% uh, or 44% uh, in a much earlier study from the 60s. In Indonesia, it was 35%. But then in a lot of countries, it was far, far lower including in countries that are far, far less affluent than America. So in Sri Lanka, it was about 10%. Um, in Singapore, it was 4%. In Nigeria, it was about 2% of abortions took place because the woman couldn't afford a child. Um, and this is a country that, as I say, is far less affluent than the United States. Um, so all that to say, it is a a significant minority of women who have this as the main reason for abortion. And if a woman is allowed to choose many different reasons for having an abortion, if you survey her and say, tick all the boxes that apply, actually, a, you know, a pretty significant number will say, because I, I can't afford it, or because I have financial difficulties, and so on. 70% um, in, in a study from the 80s in America said that I think it's much, much lower now. But you know, not all the not all women. But as I say, the, it's the minority of women who say in pretty much every country that this is the main reason for having an abortion. What we normally find is that most women who say that financial reasons are a part of their rationale, they will actually have a number of different reasons for the abortion. So they will say, yes, finances play a part, 
but actually the main reason I'm having an abortion is because of my education or my career or it's not the right partner or it's not the right time or I've completed my family or, or something else. So it is a, it's a reason that we have to take account of and certainly it's not a negligible proportion. It's a very significant proportion of women, um, but it's certainly not the main reason that people cite for having abortions. And so that will limit just how, um, how much of a, an impact financial support does have. Um, just quickly on that, there's a, a really interesting study, I think from Norway, maybe from Denmark, one of the, the Scandinavian countries, which asked women having abortions, would you, did you want financial information, i.e. information about the financial support available to you before having an abortion? And actually, it was only a very small proportion of women who said yes. Most women having an abortions just didn't even want to know what financial support was available. Um, and then the number who said that it would have changed their decision was even smaller still. So there's a, a fair bit of evidence from a variety of places to, to suggest that, yes, finances play a significant role, but it's certainly not the main role in, in women's decision making for abortion. Okay, very interesting. Uh, based on all that, uh, what else does the literature say about how welfare policy might impact abortion rates? Yeah, so there's a there's actually not a great deal of literature on this, which is kind of surprising given how um, given how often it's suggested as a, a solution to abortion. Um, there are some studies in in a variety of different countries, mostly the U.S. and a little bit in Eastern Europe, where they've had. For about half a century in Eastern Europe, they've had pronatalist policies where they had too few people having children. And so they've had incentives really since the 1950s and 60s to try and promote childbearing and, and you know, promote, incentivize people to have more children. Um, most of those have not worked very well. <laughs> um, Eastern Europe and Eastern Asia, which has the same problem and has rolled out the same measures, they're really all struggling to increase their birth rate, no matter what support they give. I mean, in Hungary, you get crazy benefits. I think if you have a certain number of kids, I think three or four, you never have to pay income tax for the rest of your life. Um, you get like a free people carrier. If you have three or four kids in Hungary, you get child, you know, birth bonuses for each child and so on, you know, and you get huge interest-free loans and so on. So, you know, in certain parts of the world, there are huge, huge financial incentives to have kids. And for the most part, they haven't really made much difference. Now, if you look at the countries in Europe, which have the top family policies in the world, all the countries that have the top family policies that promote parenthood and having children, and the countries that have the most maternal leave, you know, paid maternity leave, they actually have higher than average abortion rates. So these are countries like Sweden, Norway, Iceland, Denmark, all of those countries have very generous pro-family policies, pro-maternity policies, and they all have an abortion rate that is significantly higher than the European average. Um, the same is true of countries like Estonia, um, France, the UK, and so on. So we know that those policies haven't really worked particularly well. What there has been is a few studies looking from a really rigorous economic perspective, you know, looking in detail at all the confounding factors and so on, what is the impact of different welfare policies among the different American states on the abortion rate? And this is done 
been particularly summarized by a scholar called Laura Hussey from the University of Maryland, Baltimore. And what she basically found is that if you have a state that is pro-abortion, so they will encourage abortion, they keep extending abortion access and that sort of thing, increased welfare actually seems to increase the abortion rate. Maybe counterintuitive, but that's what it seems to do. Whereas if you're in a pro-life state that, you know, tries to limit access to abortion, tries to support mothers to have, you know, to, to continue their pregnancies, generally increased welfare in that circumstance reduces the abortion rate. And so what she found is overall is that whether the effect, whether welfare helps or makes things worse kind of depends on the rest of the policies that the government has. And so this is why it's really a nuanced question. In some cases, welfare can help. Pro-family policies can help, whether it's, you know, assisting private pregnancy centers to help or whether it's government grants or, or loans or whatever. Um, in the right context, in a family-friendly context, welfare does actually seem to make a positive difference. But in a context that is hostile to life and that is, you know, promoting abortion, it actually seems to make the problem worse. So welfare is a mixed bag, but it sort of reinforces the idea that the central question is, what is the government doing in terms of the culture that it's trying to create and the access to abortion that it, that it allows? And it sort of reinforces the idea that those questions are the primary questions here. Thank you so much, Dr. Miller. You've had a lot of really useful insights so far, uh, and I'm looking forward to picking this conversation up in part two, uh, where we will discuss the impacts of sex education and contraceptive use on abortion rates. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And a massive thank you to our listeners for joining us today. If you have any topic requests, you can direct message us on the social media pages linked in the description of this episode. You can also email us at info at aaplog.org. And if you're a medical professional interested in joining this community as a member, you can do so by going to aaplog.org slash join. We will see you next week.